We're going to turn to our Bibles now, to Luke's Gospel and to chapter 1. We've been in a series for the last couple of weeks called A Christmas Miracle. Uh, and we've been looking at the, the miracles of Christmas. It's so easy to forget, but this is a supernatural story. So two weeks ago, we had a guest speaker, uh, the priest, Zechariah. Uh, he was talking us through that uh, time when God broke the silence, that miracle uh, of John the Baptist's arrival. Last week, we were looking at the star. What on earth could it be? Uh, and what does it point us to? Uh, and we're going to come to probably the most amazing miracle of all. Luke chapter 1, and start reading at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, who is your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who it was said would be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Let's pray together for just a moment. Lord, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this story. And we thank you for moments like these when we can open your story and invite you to speak. And we pray, Holy Spirit, would you just draw near to us now and just rest on this word and help us to know and to see and to hear what you'd have to say to each of us today. Would you lead us, Lord, and uh, just guide us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you like questions? My, um, my brother this morning, who we're going we're gonna to have to hot-foot it after the service, we're meeting up with family for a meal today, so pray for us. And, um, but this morning, he, he sent a text to the family WhatsApp group, it's just a list of questions that his son, George, asked him just that morning. There's about 20 questions uh, that he sent through. Uh, one was, uh, how much is gold? Don't know why that was on his mind this morning. Uh, how hard is the moon? And because they live down in Sidmouth in Devon, uh, why is Wales so far away? Great, great questions. I love questions. And I want us to think this morning about the question of the virgin birth. These words from Luke's Gospel. As Mary asks, how will this birth come about? I'm, I'm a virgin. And here's the answer. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
And I just want to journey through these words and other passages this morning. Uh, and my question really is, uh, how can we know? Is there any evidence for the virgin birth? Now, I'm obviously not talking about evidence in sort of, you know, scientific terms, because unfortunately they didn't do sonograms and all the rest of it back in the day. But how can we, you know, how can we be confident today uh, that this actually happened? So, again, I'm going to set myself a bit of a challenge, I'm going to defend the virgin birth, uh, and hopefully uh, talk about why, why it matters so much. Uh, before we get started, I want to clear up a little bit of sort of background noise, because sometimes when we come to a question, there are thoughts, aren't there, and uh, other things that are triggered. Uh, one of the things that gets shared a lot at the moment, at this kind of time of year, uh, is the idea that perhaps the notion of a virgin birth is just a mistranslation of the passages of Scripture. I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, it's a popular thing to, to, to publish. Uh, and it goes back to this, and I want to look at this word uh, that Matthew uses when he quotes from Isaiah. So he says, a virgin will conceive. Now, he's quoting from a prophecy uh, from the prophet Isaiah, who wrote something like 700 years before this event ever took place. Uh, and in the Hebrew, he uses the word Alma, which can be translated uh, as either a young woman, and in the context, the culture of the day, that meant an unmarried woman, or it can mean a virgin. And so critics of this want to say that when Matthew translates that, which was Hebrew, into the Greek, he takes a decision on it that perhaps is a little bit less clear than, than he'd like it to be. But that's, that's just not the case. Uh, when the Jews were, were scattered in exile, uh, they decided, because they weren't being taught Hebrew, that they wanted a Greek version of the scriptures. This is called the Septuagint. Uh, and this was written by 72 different translators, six from each of the tribes of Israel. Uh, and as they come to translate the Old Testament, they, they're obviously choosing Greek words. And when they translate that passage from Isaiah, this was written um, something like 200, 300 years before Jesus was born. They translate the word into Greek, uh, parenthios, which only ever means virgin. And so as, as Matthew is quoting, he's quoting from the Greek version. Uh, and so there's no, there's no misunderstanding. Uh, it's kind of ironic because it's not just that word that, that comes up. It comes up again and again, as, as we're going to see uh, as we go through this. So the first thing I want us to do is to examine the claim, first of all. Uh, it is a huge claim to make. At some point, uh, some time before, I guess nine months-ish before B.C. turned to A.D., these words escaped from Mary's lips. Words, and this is no exaggeration, that didn't just change the course of her life, have changed the course of history. <coughs> this pregnancy is a miracle. This baby does not have an earthly father. Now, initially, we know from the Gospels, from, from the Bible, uh, that Joseph struggles with this. And uh, even though he's struggling, he plans to do the right thing. He plans for a, a quiet divorce. And so for a while, it, it's just Mary standing alone. This pregnancy is a miracle. Now, by any stretch of the imagination, this is an extraordinary claim to make. Uh, and I want to make the point as we begin that it was an unnecessary claim to make. Many people have looked at this and thought, well, well did Mary just, just make it up? Did she find herself in a situation and need to come up with another explanation for it? 
Uh, well, I think it doesn't take a great stretch to realize that almost any other explanation uh, would have been more believable than a miracle in this situation. It's unnecessary for two reasons. In Deuteronomy, we have some laws that are written, and it's a part of a section when Moses is saying to the people again and again, we want to purge evil from our midst. We want to be a, a, a clean people. And so um, Moses is, is dictating these, these laws to the people. He said this, If out in the country a man happens to meet a young woman who's pledged to be married and rapes her, only the man who has done this shall die. It was a death penalty in the Old Testament. Do nothing to the woman. She has committed no sin deserving death. Uh, and it goes on to say, though the betrothed woman screamed, there was no one to hear her. And so, under Old Testament law, if this happened under a, an attack, Mary would face no consequences for it. We know that she's from Nazareth, which is a little town. It was city now, but back in the day, it was a little town out in the country. And so she could have claimed that it was a sexual attack and nothing would have happened to her. Claiming that this baby has been given to her by the Holy Spirit does not make it easier for her. It makes it harder. It comes into the category then of laws in the Old Testament, which would be known as, as blasphemy, anything that kind of brought God down uh, or, or compared him or, or involved him in our affairs. Uh, this is from Leviticus. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord will be put to death. So there is no circumstances where Mary making this story up makes life any more convenient for her. One of the uh, authors that I read a lot has taken two scriptures and put them together to define what lying is. He says, a lie is an abomination in the, lie of, uh, in the eyes of the Lord and a very present help in time of need. Uh, but this, this would not have helped Mary's case. It did not get her out of danger. It got her into more danger. Could it be possible that it was not a convenient lie, but actually an inconvenient truth? It's an extraordinary claim to make. But the claim itself doesn't just rest on Mary. It, it starts there. Uh, I want to kind of call something else in, into the dock. I want to look at Jesus' explanation. How, how did Jesus think of himself, his identity, his, his origins? Uh, what does Jesus say about where he's come from and, and who he is? Uh, well, again, there's huge evidence of, of, of who Jesus believed he was. Uh, he, he claimed to have a unique intimacy with God. It's got him into trouble again and again in the Gospels. And eventually, uh, he was tried for charges of blasphemy. That's, uh, that, that was the charge that, that led to the cross itself. He claimed to have a unique intimacy. He called God his father. Now, in the Old Testament, we do have a handful of passages where God is described as the father of the nation. But the Jews thought of Abraham as their father, that sort of uh, geology, um, genealogy, sorry, that, that sort of ancestry. Uh, but Jesus claimed to have a unique relationship with God, so much so that when people saw him talking to his father, they said to him, teach us to pray like you do. He has a unique intimacy. Uh, at times in his ministry, he says, I, I only do what I see my father doing. Uh, he, has, he claims to have a unique origin as well. 
There was one time when the Jews are questioning him about where he's from and why, he's, why he can claim this, why he can do this. And he comes out with this. Before Abraham was, I am. And the more you stop and think about that, not before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I am. That phrase that Moses speak, that God speaks to Moses in the Old Testament as Moses asks for his name, the divine name of God. Before Abraham was, and Jesus again and again makes comments about coming into the world, somehow not being made here on earth, not like um, most of us do, sort of knit together uh, in our mother's womb, that he has existed before that, which is unique. I mean, it's certainly not true of us, is it? But Jesus is, has a unique origin. And time and time again, he makes reference to that. And then he has a unique identity. The Jews know that if Jesus claims to be the Son of God, he is by very definition also God the Son. That he is divine. There's one time when he's talking about him and his Father being one. And they say, listen, you're making yourself equal with God. And Jesus never counters that. He claims to be divine. And then we have his unique ministry. How many times in the Gospels do people come to Jesus and say, how were you able to do what you can do? Again, some of the greatest answers we have are, are, are times of controversy when Jesus is, is challenged. Uh, there's a passage in John chapter 10 around Solomon's colonnades at winter when the Jews sort of surround him and uh, are piling questions on him. And at one point, Jesus says, don't believe me then. Don't believe me unless I do what my father does. Don't believe me. Unless you can see in me a divine power, divine compassion, a divine identity. And time and time again, as people have looked at the life of Jesus, you're left with the inescapable conclusion. He is not just human. He is God. Jesus' own explanation points to the fact that he has a unique origin, a unique birth, a, a virgin birth. Uh, but that's, that's not all either. And then we have the testimony of his earliest followers. So one of the things that is often said about the virgin birth uh, is that it's a mistranslation of one or two verses of Scripture. But again, that's not accurate. If you look at the Gospels themselves, we've already seen that Matthew uh, makes reference to it, uh, that Luke specifically mentions it. Uh, Mark calls Jesus the son of Mary, which is a really telling phrase that we'll come on to in, in just a second. Uh, and then we have John. John, who starts his gospel not with stars and shepherds and mangers, but takes us back to the dawn of time itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Nothing has been made that has not been made through him. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot extinguish it. And then it builds to this grand crescendo. And then the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John begins his gospel with a really clear statement about Jesus' origin and identity. But they're not all either. Uh, within the Bible itself, we have Paul, who doesn't specifically mention the virgin birth, but tells us things like, your attitude should be like that of Jesus's, who, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but made himself nothing, stepping down, humbling himself, being found in appearance as a man, and becoming obedient to death even death on the cross. That's one of many passages where Paul passionately talks, and poetically as well, uh, about Jesus coming down uh, and becoming flesh and blood. Uh, Peter makes mention of it many times and then tells us really clearly, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Peter puts his neck right on the line puts his head way above the parapet and says, I was there. At a day and in a day and age when it was dangerous to do so, he said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Hebrews 2 makes all kinds of references to Jesus' divinity, to how he is, is better than any system that's gone before. And that's not all. That's the earliest followers we have in, in the scriptures. But then if you go back and read all the early church fathers, dating back some of them first, second century, they all make reference to the virgin birth. It's not some sort of mistake. It's not a mistranslation. It's not inserted later. The earliest, very, very earliest, all testify to it. We have as well something called the Apostles' Creed. I was thinking this morning we should try and test you on this, but we're not going to, don't worry. Uh, this is based, was, wasn't probably not written by the apostles, but very much based on their teaching and uh, is dated right back into the early church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Words that in a day when largely people couldn't read or write were repeated so that they were learned and sometimes read at baptisms. The church has taken a stand on this since the earliest days. Jesus is not just another human being who did nice and good things. I'm, I'm really thrilled when people think that Jesus was a good guy who said some good stuff. But I'm saying this in love and concern. That will not get you into heaven. Just thinking that he was good great wise person will not get you there. So much more as we're about to see. Anybody know the next phrase, incidentally, that comes in the Apostles' Creed? Born of the Virgin Mary. Somebody just muttered it behind their mask. <laughs> Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified, buried, and raised. Jesus' coming cannot be detached from what he came to do. I know Christmas and Easter are at different times of the year and very different parts of the story, but you cannot separate them. Jesus came to give his life. And the point is that there on the cross, he was satisfying all the demands of the law. If Jesus is not God, he cannot fully satisfy God's holy standards. That's the point. That's what's at stake here. And there at the cross, we know that among the people that were watching was a group of women, and in the group of women was Jesus' mother. Mary was there the day that Jesus died. She was stood uh, at the cross. 
Jesus being tried on charges of blasphemy. And Mary is silent. Mary doesn't say it was a mistake, it was a lie, it was a trick. Even at the expense of Jesus' life, she knows this is not a convenient lie, this is an inconvenient truth. She knows where he's come from. And there from the cross, Jesus looks down and sees Mary and John. And he looks at Mary and he looks at John and he says, you two now are going to have a unique relationship. Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple, that's John, took her into his home. How is John's gospel and John's writing so much more personal than all the other gospels? Well, because John took Mary into his home. They had the rest of their lives together to talk about these things, to, to share these things together. John, who knew Jesus probably better than anyone on the planet, the disciple that he loved, says this was not another friend. This was not another man. This was the Word made flesh. The earliest followers all testify to Jesus' virgin birth. Thirdly, there's another group of people, and these are perhaps a, uh, an unlikely group of people. There were his enemies. Now, Jesus um, made many enemies as he sort of spoke truth, as he brought power and, and peace to situations. Uh, not everyone liked it because they couldn't control it. And there were things that are fired at Jesus throughout uh, the, the course of his life. Uh, one of them is this. This is quite early on, actually. This is when Jesus returns to Nazareth, his hometown, uh, and speaks in the synagogue. And uh, initially, there's this response to it. There's a, a sense of awe and wonder, and people are amazed at his words. And then this niggle, this whisper, this, this rumor starts. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, we miss this probably in, in our day, but back in the day, to describe someone's parentage as coming from the mother was highly offensive. Uh, usually, sons were named after their, their father. And so it was a well-known fact in Jesus' hometown that there was some sort of question, there was some sort of dispute over Jesus' birth. Isn't this Mary's son? And that phrase comes up again and again. Again, there's another time when, when Jesus is being questioned in John chapter 8. Uh, and these, the, the people who are there are trying to bait him. They, they throw this at him. Well, we were not born from sexual immorality. And that was the claim. That's what they were throwing at Jesus. So Jesus' parentage, who his father was, was a question that was well known uh, amongst his enemies. Now, within the Jewish sort of ruling sect, I guess you'd call it, you had the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. Uh, you had people whose job it was to kind of maintain order, to be the guardians of the law, the keepers of the way, they were called. And they would regularly investigate claims of heresy, which means that... They can fire the question at Jesus, but no other potential father was ever suggested. During Jesus' lifetime or any other time since, they could not find one person to pin it on. And so somehow, strangely, in the story of Jesus' enemies, we, we get these clues, these, these glimpses. They knew about it, but they could not put up anybody that they could suggest as, as, as a potential candidate for it. 
So there's the extraordinary claims of Mary, the unnecessary claims of Mary in, in some ways. We have Jesus' own explanation. We have his enemies. And there's one more person, I think, to call to the witness stand. And I think his testimony in this is, is so powerful. Joseph, of all the people to believe Mary's story, and of course he, he struggled at first, we don't know how or when he found out or how he first processed the news, but we do know that he struggled to accept it. And then there's this dream. An angel appears to him, tells him not to be afraid to take Mary home as his wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then we have these amazing words. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, took Mary home as his wife. He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. Now the humility of the guy, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph fully accepting here of the will of God, the, the plan of the Father. Both these people, Mary and Joseph, should be heroes in our faith. Absolutely incredible. Joseph accepts it. Joseph believes it, and that changes everything. You know, for Mary, for all that they're going to go through, the flight to Egypt, the, the threats on, on Jesus' life, to have Joseph at her side changes everything. We read in that passage earlier of the family they do go on to have, and the life that they do go on to leave. You know, very little of it, but it's certainly there. But for all the questions that we have now, 2,000 years later, there stands this testimony of Joseph who believed it. And so as you start to put all of that together, Mary's claims, Jesus' words, the enemies who accused but could not provide a candidate, and Joseph's testimony, I think you've got this really compelling argument that actually what is happening, what's unfolding, is the story of the God who was made flesh, the God who is with us now. And so some of you might be thinking, well, that's interesting, but why does it matter? I think it matters for this reason. If what is happening in Bethlehem is just a baby that's being born in a manger, yes, it's sad, yes, it's tragic, yes, it's awful, it's something that happens again and again, children born on the street, living on the street. But if this baby, born in poverty, is God in the flesh, the God who has come to give his life for you, that changes absolutely everything. They will give him the name, Isaiah tells us, and Matthew repeats, Emmanuel, which means God with us living as one of us, viewing our lives now through a baby's eyes, walking our road, feeling our pain, identifying with us at our lowest, at our most broken, at our most humble, and then working through the salvation. He will save their people from their sins. It matters because the one who grew up to be crucified on a cross is God with us 
who does for me and does for you what we could not do for ourselves, lives a perfect life, offers a perfect offering to God, a perfect sacrifice, so that he could save his people from their sins. And this Christmas, as we journey together through this story, it is that power, it is that person, it is that price which gives us hope. Let's just take a moment to pray together this morning.